time of year, companies make it their goal to make us feel like we're missing something in our lives. And they make it their goal for us to feel like our life isn't complete, that we're missing some essential thing that we need, and they have it, that we can buy their service or buy their product or whatever it is. Um, Or there's this thing that our kids are missing. If you don't have this for your kids, they're missing out. Like, this is the thing that they all need, or this is the thing your family needs. This is going to bring everything together uh, exactly how you want it to be. If we brought, bought their product, our life would be fulfilled. Life would be as it should be. We'd have magical moments with our kids. We'd have confidence at work and with the opposite sex. If we had this, you know, cologne on, like, wow, oh, look at the you know, ladies snapping their heads. You know, look. I mean, you know, of course, married folks. You know, spouse snapping their heads to, well, it's nice cologne. You know, that polo that you're wearing. You know, whatever it is, uh, and we'd feel like we're complete. And millions of dollars are spent every year to make us feel this way. We're assaulted everywhere with messages saying, if only you had this product, your life could be how you want it to be. And it's easy to fall into this allure of the perfect gift. You know, we imagine like, okay, if I just get this perfect thing, I'm going to watch, you know, whoever it is opening it. They're going to get the wrapping paper out. You know, there's that moment of anticipation and nervousness. They don't know what they're getting. You don't know if they'll like it. And you're just hoping, like, as they open it, as soon as their eyes glimpse it, you know, it'll just... Face lights up with a huge smile of like, yes, I've always wanted this. This is exactly what I want. You know, whether it's a grandkid or a niece or nephew or a spouse or a friend or whoever it is that you're giving a gift to. And we think, wow, if I give them just the perfect thing they've always wanted that they've always hoped for. And my and Katie's families do Amazon wish lists when we do like name exchanges. So we look through, you know, all these products on Amazon or other sites and you add them to your wish list. And then people can go on and pick out whatever item you picked out already. So it kind of takes a little bit of the nervousness out. It's like, okay, like I know I'm getting a good gift because they told me they wanted it. Just, you know, click a button, add to cart, comes to my house, wrap it up. I just put in a gift bag. I mean, it could probably come wrapped from Amazon. We don't have to do hardly any work. But on the other side, now I have all this you know, nervousness and stress of getting my wish list perfect. Like, okay, like all year I'm thinking about like, oh, you know, it would be really nice if I had this thing, but I don't really want to buy it. Okay, put that on the wish list. But then when it comes time to November, I know that all our family is going to be bothering us. Like, hey, have you updated your wish list? You know, it's like Thanksgiving's kind of the cutoff time. Um, so, like, just yesterday I was looking at these slippers. It's like, I need some house slippers. And it's like, I don't want to get the wrong ones. I need to have the, you know, the perfect one that's not going to wear out. It's going to be comfy. Like, oh, is this fuzzy stuff inside? I don't know about that. Maybe I just want more, like, the cushiony stuff. And it's like, okay, I need to put the perfect slipper or the perfect whatever on that's going to, like, fulfill this need I have in my life. And it's easy for us to put our hope on the products we buy. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, like, if I just had this thing, then my life would be complete or I'd be fulfilled. Everything would be good. We could put our hope in other things, though, as well, rather than just, like, products or gifts or, you know, physical things. For me, I can, I can put my hope in completing my to-do list. If I could just finish everything on this, then I would be complete. I would feel fulfilled. I could be at rest. I'd have peace. I could put my hope in, you know, this is a church um, and seeing you guys grow, like, okay, if everyone was just, I just saw them growing in their relationship with God and growing in godliness and they're reading their Bibles more and praying more and sharing their faith more, like, oh, then I would just be fulfilled and satisfied and feel complete. And as we go through some of these changes we're making as a church, I want, I can look for my hope, put my hope in everything just going perfect and going well and there's no hiccups or no mistakes and it's like if everything could just be perfect and I could think through everything then I would feel satisfied at rest and at peace. And we were made 
The reason we do this so easily, we're made to put our hope in something. We're made to put place our hope in in God ultimately, but we can so often tend to put our hope in smaller things. So let's just think about uh, what are some of the things that we could we tend to put our hope in to fulfill us and satisfy us and complete us. We think like, you know, if, if I just had this, or if only this would happen, or if only this person would do this, what are some of the things we can look to for our peace um, or a sense of rest and fulfillment and satisfaction? What do we put our hope in? Just name some things. <clears throat> money, or a set amount of money. Money. Success. Success. Yeah, like career or being a mom, being a dad, being a good uncle, whatever it is. Huh? Better health. Health. Yeah. I'm gonna work out enough. And if I just work out enough, then I'll be like fulfilled. I'll be the ultimate person or something like that. Stuff. Stuff. Just <laughs> a great word, I guess. Stuff. People like family and friends. Yeah, I'll look for. Yeah, this relation or relationships, but people relationships. We're hoping that for fulfillment, satisfaction, peace. What else? Pretty good list. Love. Love. In here, like somebody loving me, finding somebody to love me, or in a relationship where somebody loves us back. Yeah. Purpose. Oh, yeah. Like, if I don't, yeah, in our work or whatever we're doing, like, this, what's the outcome? Or was there, what's the purpose that makes us feel fulfilled? What kind of pee that is. maybe tied in with success it's uh, things going our way like you know if this day would just go as I planned or this week would go as I planned no interruptions you know no hiccups um, then uh, then I would be fulfilled I'd feel complete and feel at rest maybe that would be on our maybe that a better way to say this in our plans we put our hope in our own plans Anything else? Last call. Significance is kind of like success, I suppose. Okay. Like we're known or people appreciate us or something like that? Is that what you're thinking? Mm-hmm. We'll put, um, we belong somewhere. Okay. Appreciation, known, belonging. Yeah, like when I walk into this place, all these people know me and say hi to me, and I'm like a significant person or something like that. Well, it gives us a good a good list. This week we're we're starting this series in Matthew. We're going to go through Matthew one and two, um, called the birth of King Jesus. Today, December well not December first, but the fourth Sunday before Christmas marks the beginning of Advent, uh, leading up to Jesus's birth, remembering it. Advent means arrival or coming, and it's this season where we're remembering the first coming of Jesus, and we're anticipating it as we build towards Christmas uh, when we celebrate the arrival of King Jesus. And as we read today's passage, I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't really, like, get your Christmas spirit kind of stoked. You know, what's all, all these names? You know, what's going on here? Like, this isn't what 
I usually read at Christmas time in my uh, daily Bible reading and get pumped for Christmas. But in these 17 verses uh, that we read, um, it's a list of names that reminds us uh, the people of Israel, as they would have read it in the first century, as they're reading it after Jesus came, this was written after Jesus came, and as they're reading it, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and then other people besides the Jewish people, Gentiles and non-Jewish people who believed in Jesus, it's looking back and remembering these ancient promises that God had made of how he was going to bless the world through the family of Abraham. And now we're reading, this is the genealogy from the family of Abraham and then the line of David. And so we just got done with Genesis. And so we saw from Genesis 12, Genesis 50, God chose Abraham and his family to bless them so they'd be a blessing to the rest of the world. And now we're reading this list of names traveling down through the centuries. And this is about, a, this list covers about 2,000 years of history um, in, all these, in all these names that are written down. And it reminds us of the wrong turns and the detours that these people took. And as the people of Israel read it in the first century and onward, it's reminding them of how there's so many times that the plan, God's plan, could have gone wrong and could have been destroyed um, by the very people that he was trying to have this plan with and by their mistakes and the things they chose to do. It reminds us of the sins of their past. reminds them of the history of their kings not living up to what God had called them to. As you read these, these names of the kings... You read them back in the Old Testament, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, those are two books. 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, those are two books. You read the list of the names of kings, and you're like, this guy was good, this guy was horrible, this guy was good, this guy was horrible. And you read, this king did what was evil in God's sight. This king you know, was righteous and did what was good in God's sight. And it reminds them of how all their kings have failed them. Or not all of them, but a lot of their kings failed them and didn't live up to what God had called them to be. And it reminds them of the promises and the prophecies that God told them, one day I'm going to send a king from the line of David who, who's going to lead you all back to me. He's going to lead you like you're always supposed to be led. He's going to bring my kingdom on earth. He's going to bring my presence back. He's going to restore everything to how it was supposed to be, bringing things back to their former glory. And this list that we read represents the hopes and prayers and longings of generation upon generation as they waited for these great promises to be fulfilled. So it's like, you know, for us, it's like, man, this list of names. And we think about each of these generations and the people in between them that are longing and praying, you know, even from the beginning, God, you said you were going to bless us to be a blessing in those longings and prayers. And then, God, you said you were going to give us this king that was going to lead us in righteousness <coughs> and peace and justice. And God, would you do that? And just centuries upon centuries of prayers we see in these people. But for us, they show us <coughs> this as our big idea, that Jesus is the king we all long for. This is our big idea for today as we go through this passage. Jesus is the king we all long for. All these people were longing for this one day when this king would come, and they're longing for it to happen. And in all of our hearts, we're built to hope in something. We long for something. We can sense that this world isn't as... It should be. And so we long for something to put our lives right, to make things heal, to fix the brokenness, to take away the things that aren't as they're supposed to be. And we long for something. We put our hope in things to do that. And all these people are longing for that as well and putting their hope in it. And so Jesus, this passage tells us, is the king we all long for. As we go through it, that will become more clear. But as we can look at the history of Israel and this is you know, like a 
three or four minute summary. We saw Abraham. We've met Abraham and his family. We saw how they ended in Egypt at the end of uh, Genesis. But then 400 years pass, and eventually a pharaoh comes along that doesn't know who Joseph is, and he enslaves all of them. And so for like 400 years-ish, they are in slavery. And finally God calls a man named Moses, and he says, I want you to lead my people out of slavery to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where they're going to worship me, and I'm going to bring them to back the land of Canaan where they're going to be able to have all that I've promised them. And they do bring them back there, and they're settled in there. Eventually they want a king. Um, Saul is the first king, and he's not the king God chose, but God chose chooses David to be their king. And David, we're told, is a man after God's own heart. And so he leads this nation. Um, he has some big mistakes that we'll see in this chapter that we're reading today. But then after David, there's Solomon, and he does pretty good, but then he gets corrupted by taking all these foreign wives, and he starts worshiping other gods. Uh, and eventually the kingdom splits. It becomes a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And on both ends, there's a mix of good and bad. Some of them are good kings, some of them are bad kings. A lot of them are bad, and they don't lead people in the ways of the Lord. They lead them people astray. They worship idols. And then eventually the northern kingdom gets taken off um, into Assyria. And eventually the southern kingdom gets taken off into Babylon, like we read around here. But it was as these kings are failing, as the nation is failing to worship God, to make him uh, number one in their lives, there's these prophets that are saying, don't do this. You're not following God. Remember what he told us to do. Worship him alone. Love him with all our heart. Come back to practice justice and righteousness and let's walk in his ways and not worship these other gods. And the prophets were warning them, we're going to get sent off and deported from our land. We're going to forfeit this, this land that he's given us if we keep doing it this way. And the nation did not listen. And so they'd go into exile into Babylon. And then there is eventually a return Cyrus of Persia comes and takes things over and he says, you know what, actually I'm going to send some people back to repopulate the land. And so they come back, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the capital. But the people who saw the former temple, they weep because they're like, this is nothing compared to what it was before. And the glory of God doesn't come and fill it like it did before. And they're just like, this is not anything like what we remember the land of Israel being. And then from the prophet Malachi, if you're reading the Old Testament, it's the last book uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Malachi, between Malachi and Matthew, what we just wrote, wrote here, last chapter of Malachi to Matthew 1, is 400 years of silence where there's no prophets speaking. Nobody's saying, thus says the Lord, this is what God says. There's no visions, there's no prophecy happening. So there's these 400 years of silence. And so then when we get to this in Matthew, we're seeing Matthew trace, like, look, all the ancient promises, all the history that I just told you about, all the things that God said through the promises to Abraham and, and so through the prophets and the prophecies of what he said he would do, now it's come to fulfillment here. So we read, one of the things that we'll come back to in a bit is we kind of like to have a microwave mentality like we, of where we just want things quick. Just make this food. I just want it done. And, but God, with this list, we see like, man, 2,000 years and Matthew's tracing it through of like all these generations, how it came from Abraham, trickled all the way down to Jesus, finally fulfilled it all. It's like God takes a crockpot approach where it's more of this slow cook over time where people are waiting on the Lord generation upon generation. We'll come back to the idea in a bit. But it starts off in verse 1 telling us the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you know, tracing his heritage back. In genealogy, the word in Greek is actually uh, Genesis, 
And this takes us back, like, okay, this is, this is the start of something new. This is the, the book of Jesus' Genesis, of where his, God's going to, the book of Genesis tells us about creation, and these first promises to restore blessing. And then now we're seeing, like, look, this is, we're coming back. There's a new beginning happening here. And we're told, uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's in this family of Abraham, blessed to be a blessing to all the world. And he's in the royal line of David. And so it's like we start off where God says, I'm going to bless this whole family to be a blessing. And then it narrows down eventually to David, the line of David, somebody in the line of David. And then eventually narrows down to this one person, Jesus. And there's three time periods covered in here. We have Abraham to David in verses 2 to 6. Uh, and then the second part to 6 uh, to 11 is the from David to the deportation to Babylon. And then from the deportation to Babylon to Jesus, verses 12 through 16. And this Abraham to David is seven, about like 800 years. David to the deportation is 400 years. And the deportation of Jesus is about 600 years. And so he's just you know, cruising through you know, centuries of stuff. But let's start in the Abraham, from Abraham to David the king in verses 2 through 6. Remember the promise to Abraham, blessing to the nations. And so, verse 2, we see Abraham was the father of Isaac. We are familiar with that name. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. We're familiar with that name. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. So remember, we just got done dealing with Jacob and his 12 sons. And Judah was one of them. And he gets brought forth as this, uh, as the one who emerges as the leader. He's going to be the king tribe. Jacob blesses him and says, the kings are going to come from you. The scepter is not going to depart from Judah. And then verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You remember when I uh, conveniently uh, had Nate preach on Genesis 38, uh, when Judah has this big mix-up with Tamar, where he sleeps with his own daughter-in-law, and he loses two of his sons, but then he has these two sons, um, and then that, and that's where we know, remember of Judah, but then he eventually rises to leadership. And then in verse 6, he ends with Jesse, the father of David, the king. And so he's chased from Abraham to David, um, which is about 800 years. And then, so this is focusing on us, okay, we're, Jesus is the king we all long for. And now we're focused on David and his kingship from the family of Abraham. And God always, the kings were this God's chosen servant um, to bring his kingdom on earth. That he was supposed to lead the nation in righteousness and peace and justice. He was supposed to lead the nation as God would lead the nation, because God is their first king, and this king is just this representative that's supposed to be leading uh, God leading through him. And then from David, the deportation to Babylon is from second part of verse 6 to 11. We read on David, verse 6, was the father of Solomon, that's his first son, uh, by the wife of Uriah. Solomon has the kingdom for a while, but it doesn't go well. And eventually we get down to verse 11 where we're told, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And so David's reigning as king, but his sons do not reign as he do. David was a man after God's own heart, but not all of his in his line are men after God's own heart. And so eventually God is warning him, warning him, warning them, if you keep, if you keep this up, if you keep going astray, like you're going to forfeit the privilege of having this land I gave to you. And eventually they do, and so they get deported out. Um, God uses the nation of Babylon. They take over the area, and they take them out and bring them over to their land. 
But this tells us of another hope. So the first section told us that there's this hope for this king, this chosen servant who's going to lead God's people, like there is a king in the line of David. But then there's also this longing that they have to be brought back from exile, that we're alienated and exiled and separated from God. And this was like a physical exile showing like this is the consequences of worshiping other gods. You get removed from my presence. You get removed from the land I want you to live in with me. And God's showing them this is the consequences of this. But then, so there's this longing. We want to return back to God. We want to not be separated. We want to not be alienated, not be exiled from God. And so there's this longing for this return from exile. And now, in verses 12 through 16, from the deportation to Jesus, there's these generations that get traced down. And finally, in verse 16, we're told, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And Christ is not um, like Jesus' last name. It wasn't, uh, you know, Joseph and Mary Christ, uh, you know, if it's in the paper, Joseph and Mary Christ gave birth to Jesus Christ. You know, here he is. Um, Christ is his title. It means Messiah from the Old Testament, um, means anointed one. And so Christ is this title. Uh, when David became king, they poured this oil on his head. It represented God's presence, and it was anointing him with oil. And now it's looking forward. There's going to be another anointed one, another king, another Christ, another Messiah who's going to come from the line of David, who's going to bring us back, who's going to lead the nation so we can be brought back from exile, not separated from God. He's going to lead us right. And uh, we're told, uh, and being in God's presence, I mean, being back from exile means back from God's presence. And so there's this longing of we want this king who's going to lead us back to God, back into God's presence, back into right relationship with him. And what will this king do? This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, of genealogy. It's a new beginning. It's a fresh start. It's a new creation. This world got created good. It went bad in Genesis 3, and now it's corrupted. But this is going to be a king that's going to lead us back to have this fresh start, to make things all things new. He's going to bring God's kingdom to earth. We're going to return from exile. We're going to be following God again. And we learn it's coming through one person, Jesus. And there's some interesting parts to this whole thing um, that there's in the Old Testament you see that uh, it's done this way but it is a little irregular and so looking back up uh, to verse 3 and this is answering well who is this king for? It's like, is this just for the Jewish people? But verse 3 you know, if you notice all the names most say are using the men's names guess how you trace these, these lines uh, but verse 3 says Judah <clears throat> the father, father of Perez and Zerah, by whom? Tamar. So the mom is named. and then But then it goes on, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And we're not told who the mom is in those cases. We're, we're reminded here of that story in Genesis 38 where Judah says, I'm going to take care of you, Tamar. Like, you're, my son was horrible, so he died. Uh, and now you're left as a widow, and I'm going to take care of you. But then he really doesn't, so she takes matters into her own hands. She dresses as a prostitute, and she tricks Judah into sleeping with her, and then she gets pregnant, and he says, like, well, whoever, whoever she got impregnated by, uh, she should die, and they should die too, and then she's like, well, it's whoever's staff and signet ring this belongs to. That's who I'm pregnant by. And he's like, oh, well, it's mine. It's 
because she got it from him when she got pregnant. And so we're told, reminded of this horrible story in this family line of like, you know, that's not quite the thing you put on the little, you know, cool tree that's knitted or whatever, crocheted in your, I don't know, I don't know the term, you know, so cross stitch, boom, there we go. <laughs> put that on here. Oh, by the way, let's remember when, you know, Judah's daughter-in-law pretended to be a prostitute, but everyone else will just, you know, trace the guys down. And it's like, why would that be in there? And then again, we see in verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Well, who's Rahab? It's another mom mentioned. And when the Israelites are going into the land of Canaan, in the book of Joshua, uh, they go into Jericho, and there's this prostitute living there. And they find shelter in her house. The guards are like looking for them. They find shelter in her house, and then she hides them up on the roof. And she says, like, you need to get my family out of here safely um, if I'm going to help you. And then she puts this little scarlet cord on the window. And so when they come and the walls get knocked down and they raid the city, Rahab gets out safely and apparently then marries one of the Israelites and has kids by them. And so now we're reminded of another. Uh, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. This is actually a prostitute who then gets saved because she's, she protects these spies of the land. And then she lives with the Israelites and uh, has kids with one of them. And then we're told even further, Salmon, in verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Ruth, there's a book of the Bible dedicated to her where she's not an Israelite, but there's a couple, there's a family of Israelites who move, who leave the land of Canaan because there's a famine. Uh, they go over to Moab, and the two sons in this family marry these non-Israelite women. Ruth is one of them. And when and finally the famine ends and they're going to go, okay, we're going to go back. Actually, the two sons die. So there's Naomi is the mom. Her husband dies. Her two sons die. And so she has these two daughter-in-laws. And she's going to go back to the land of Can- or Israel. And she's like, okay, you guys are going to stay with your people. And the one is like, okay. But Ruth is like, no, I'm going with you. And she's you know, kind of like providing for her mother-in-law almost and goes back to the land of Israel with her. And they're dirt poor, and Naomi's a wreck because she's like, I lost my husband and my two sons, and so, you know, what? Just call me bitter, is what she says. But then Ruth, she's very diligent. She goes out and she harvests wheat, um, where the poor people would harvest wheat, and eventually she gets, she marries this man named Boaz. And so now we have, we're up to three. Uh, We're not actually told whether, um, a lot of people think that uh, Jude Tamar was a non-Israelite. We know for sure Rahab was a non-Israelite. She worked. She lived in Jericho. And then we know uh, Ruth was a non-Israelite because she lived over in the land of Moab. She was a Moabite. So there's these non-Israelite people being brought in to the family of Abraham. And then it's not just that, you know, just these people that are kind of there. It's like, no, now if you trace it all down, these actually are people in the line of David who, these, these guys are pre-David, but... Uh, they become these ancestors of David the king, and then they get traced down to Jesus all the way. And the last one, in verse 6, second part, and David was the father of Solomon. By whom? By the wife of Uriah. doesn't even give us her name, because it's reminding us, wait a second, David had Solomon with who? The wife, wait, the wife of another man? The wife of Uriah? 
Remember, David sees Bathsheba on the roof, and he's like, bring her to me. He gets her pregnant, and then he's like, oh boy, this isn't good. And so he has this plot to have Uriah killed to cover the whole thing up. And so now we learn Jesus' ancestors include someone who pretended to be a prostitute, someone who was a prostitute, someone who came from the land of Moab, and, and then David uh, sleeps with another guy's wife. And so this is the lineage of Jesus that they're tracing back. But there's a point here. And this king who's going to bring people back from exile, bring people back to God, make this new creation, make all things new, this is a king that everyone needs. And no matter how maybe people have done odd things as the history of Israel has gone on, and none of it could thwart God's plan. This was all part of God's plan. And God has included these, these women. Um, a lot of them were vindicated. You know, we may think like, oh, you know, they're kind of yucky, but it's like they actually act more righteous than the men in a lot of these stories. And so it's like these women are brought into the lineage of Jesus and named specifically and from other nations, showing us that God wants to include all the nations as he brings his plan to fulfillment. And then all the nations are included in reaping the benefits of that plan. There's these messed up characters all throughout the genealogy as we read the kings. You know, there's a good king, a bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Go read the Old Testament. It's like, you know, God doesn't just use perfect people to bring about his plans. Sometimes he works because of people. Sometimes he works in spite of people. And sometimes he brings people who need to be brought into a better place of living, like Rahab and, um, and Ruth being brought into this, this family of Abraham. And what he says in verse 17, adding up all these generations, all the generations for Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 <coughs> generations. And he skips naming some people, so it kind of works out nice that he has 14, 14, 14. He doesn't name every single person uh, that was in this whole line. That's not really the point. And a lot of the genealogies in the Old Testament, too, don't name everybody. It's, you know, we read some of the genealogies in the book of Genesis, like, oh, ten, ten generations. It's like, look at that. It's like, well, you know, they kind of whittled it down. Maybe it's just the most important figures or the people to make a point. Um, but 14 generations, uh, 7 plus 7 is 14. And we know 7 is a very special number in the Bible because God created the world in six days on the seventh day he rested and so three sets of generations and 14 names in each room so it's seven and seven seven and seven seven and seven so six sevens and so you're waiting for the seventh seven and this is you know, this is kind of, this is how Jewish people would write they're like looking at these numbers this is how God created the world and he seems to be doing things in this particular way and so you have you know Seven, 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 six sevens. The seventh seven, that's going to be like the most ultimate one. And so from Jesus, well, this is the six sevens from Abraham to Jesus. And now Jesus onward is the seventh seven of like the seventh day, six days of work, and the seventh day of rest, of completion, of fulfillment. So now it's telling us that we've entered this time of like the ultimate fulfillment. It's the seventh seven in this whole line of God's history. That's the seventh day of rest and blessing, and it's come. It's, it's here. It's a time of fulfillment and uh, of completion, of culmination. God, everything's been working up to us. God wants to bless the world through Abraham's family. God wants to renew the whole creation. He wants to call 
humanity back home from exile. He wants to make all things new. And no one is excluded from this invitation to join. We've included people that are not Israelites in the very plan itself. This is a hope available to everyone. He's doing it to this one person, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, a member of the family of Abraham, a descendant of the royal line of David, just like he promised he would do. And so as we have these 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, it's like, that's crackpot. You know, just going down through the ages, 2,000 years. And it's easy for the people who read this list and for us reading it now to see God's plan. Well, look at that. Abraham. Whoop, David. Whoop, Babylon. Whoop, Jesus. There it is. Whoop, just fulfilled the whole plan. But remember, it's over 2,000 years. You know, what if you're part of the generations who lived in slavery in Egypt for 400 years? You were born into slavery you died in slavery. And you're remembering, well, God promised he was going to bless us. This doesn't feel like blessing. He's promised he was going to give us the land. We don't even have a land. We only have ourselves. <coughs> We're owned by other people. And this doesn't feel like blessing to be under Pharaoh <coughs> and him treating us this way. And how easy would it be to hope it, to, to stop hoping in God, to stop trusting, to stop trusting what he said. Like, God's not going to come through for us. Like, look, we're all slaves here. What if you lived during the reign of one of the bad kings? You would be born and die during the reign of a king uh, who's doing a horrible job, not leading this nation. Maybe you're one of the faithful ones. You're reading your Torah. You're reading your Old Testament. And you're saying, like, this isn't how things are supposed to be. We're supposed to be loving other people, loving God, and taking care of the poor, and looking up for each other. But this king, he's not worshiping God. He's not looking up for people. There's no justice, no righteousness. And then you think, okay, maybe there will, maybe God will keep his promise. He's going to bring a king that's going to take this guy out. He's going to bring a king that's going to do this all. And then you die with that king still on the throne. And you wonder, where are you, God? If you lived during the years of exile in Babylon, it would be easy to put your hope in something else. If you lived during the 400 years of silence between the prophet Malachi and the coming of Jesus. It would be easy to put your hope in something else. And God <coughs> is going slow. In those, in those times, it would be easy to turn to other things. You just had to keep the, you know, the, other, the gods of the other nations, you know, their little statues they had. It's like, well, you, just, you make them happy, you offer a sacrifice, you get what you want. Microwave. You know? I want this. I want rain. I want fertility. I want whatever it is. Offer a sacrifice. They say you'll get it. Just keep them happy, offering them sacrifices. This God seems like he's not really has his eye on the ball. And so it would be really easy to turn to other things instead of waiting and trusting in God to turn to other things. But Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And if you continue reading in Hebrews 11, it goes through a lot of these generations that we look at here and it tells us all these people didn't see what they are hoping for. Because hope, you don't hope in something that you see in front of you. And it's easy, we turn to the microwave approaches of like, well, I'm just going to turn to this because I'm tired of waiting. You know, they didn't get to see what they're hoping for, but faith is hope in things we do not see. It's assurance of things hoped for. And Romans 8, 24 through 25 says, for in this, as it's talking about the hope of new creation, it says, For in this hope we were saved. The hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Some of these people died, and all I had was to hold on to the promise. God said he would do it, and so my hope is in him. And it would be so easy as you're sitting in exile or sitting in slavery or sitting in um, with under a bad king or under 400 years of silence, like, you know what? These promises are a joke. Like, God's not, God's not here. God's not with us. He's not for us. But God is not hurried. And it's guaranteed we're going to have to wait in life. It's whether we're going to do it with hope, whether we're going to do it with patience. And even when we don't understand, will we trust the God who says he won't let us down? Will, as they read these stories in, in Genesis and Exodus and the Old Testament, will they say, God didn't let them down, he won't let us down, even though we don't get what's happening? As we look at this list, we're on the other side of Jesus' birth. Um, but we're, you know, we're on the back half, I don't know, you know, you know what I mean. We're in the A.D. of Jesus' birth. We're not B.C. Uh, but we're still waiting for the second coming. And we're told, you know, always be ready, always be waiting. And these people were longing for Jesus' coming, longing for the Messiah to come to put everything right. And now we're between the first and the second coming where there's the already of his kingdom, but it's not yet in full. We're in the last days, we're told. Well, it's like, well, how long are these last days going to be? It's been 2,000 years. And we can you know, give up hope maybe eventually and be like, yeah, you know what? Jesus said he's coming, but it's been a long time he hasn't come. But we need to remember that God is not hurried. And we need to wait. But why do we put our hope in other things? We're told to hope in God. It's because we have this trouble waiting. We have trouble waiting and trusting. And Katie and I, we have Amazon Prime, so we have this two-day shipping. And you can pay like three bucks and get like one-day shipping. Then you can pay like eight dollars and get like same-day shipping. Like I could be in my pajamas. And I could go on Amazon and be like, I want that. And it could like be at my house in the afternoon, and I wouldn't even have to. I could just pour, wear my slippers, you know. They don't even have to get out the door, like sweet. It's in my Porsche, and even get snow on me. And we were just joking last night about, you know, how terrible was it when we used to we have to wait five to eight days for something to come in the mail? Can you imagine? We're gonna have Amazon Prime the rest of our lives because we don't want to go back to those dark ages. You know, I know, I know some of you probably don't have Amazon Prime, so don't get it. You'll get addicted. Um, but you know, we were joking like we get everything so quick. Amazon Prime, I can have it here the same day. I don't even have to go outside of my house. We can get, you know, like our dog treats delivered to our house. We can get food delivered to our house. You can get everything delivered to your house. You don't have to do anything. But waiting, in the waiting, it requires trust. God, when, while we're waiting, if we didn't have to wait for anything, if we could just microwave all the results we want in our life, we wouldn't have to trust God and say, you know, you say you'll do this. And you're not giving it be right now. I'm just going to trust you. We settle for microwave options. We don't want to wait on the Lord. We turn to things that give us instant gratification. And you think about an illustration. Our bodies were made to be nourished and satisfied and fulfilled by, by food. And that's how we were designed to be nourished and filled up and completed and to grow and have energy. But if we start drinking like bleach and gasoline and putting other things in our body and hoping it's going to nourish us and fulfill us and complete us, it's just going to kill us from the inside out. But some things that are bad for us actually taste good going down. You know, lead, lead paint. Watch out for the lead paint. Uh, lead paint is, is dangerous. But it's, the reason it's so dangerous is because it tastes sweet. And so when kids, you know, oh, sweet paint chips, you know, it's like... Ooh, it's like candy right off my window or whatever. You know, I start picking it off and eating it. It's like it tastes sweet going down. 
but it's actually really bad and kills from the inside out. But they'll be eating it and want more. We're made to be nourished and satisfied and fulfilled by God, to hope in Him and be completed and fulfilled by that. And when we put our help in other things, even if it tastes sweet at the time, it kills us from the inside out. And God has a, a crockpot recipe for your life, for each of our lives. You may not understand what He's cooking. You may not understand why He's putting whatever ingredients are coming into it right now, why He's putting those in. We can trust Him with the outcome. We can trust that what He is doing is good. And we can hope in Him. We can hope in He says this is going to be the outcome. You know, you get, get a, go on Pinterest or get a box and you see, like, what's on the box. It's like, sweet, that's what I want. And then it's like, what? All these steps and ingredients? Well, I'll just skip those. Or I'll put this box in the microwave and hope it does something. No, you got to follow the steps. And if we want the outcome of what God says, that we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to be this new creation, we're going to be brought back from exile, because Jesus has come, he's made a way to come back from exile, but we don't yet see God face to face. We aren't living in his direct presence. We aren't living in a new creation. We're still in this broken world, even as we're being renewed within it. And so we're still waiting for that day when the, fi- you know, the, the thing on the front of the box is complete of what God says he's going to do happens. And he's still adding ingredients. He's still doing steps and mixing and you know, doing crazy stuff, melting fudge or our, you know, one of the hardest things. Well, kind of easy. You've been... Anyway. Uh, you know, all these weird things you might do. Chop an onion, squish a garlic, mince a garlic. You know, what all... He's like doing these things. You're like, I don't like garlic. That smells weird, God. I didn't like those 10 years of my life. That wasn't fun. That's like, yeah, just trust me. Like, that's all part of bringing this outcome that I'm doing in your life of something good. And you can... We've talked about this before. If onlys. And, you know, sometimes... I come back to the same lessons because it's like, well, we continually need to be recalibrated. And you can identify where you put your hope by looking at your if-onlys. If only this happened. If only I had this. If only they would. If only I could. If only I had more money. If only I had more free time. If only my kids would behave. If only I didn't have to go to work or go to school. If only I had a bigger house or better car. If only this person in my life would do this. Then I'd be fulfilled. Then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be complete. I could rest and have peace. So take a moment and think about what are your if-onlys you're struggling with right now? If only this happened or this was the case or if only they did this, then I would be fulfilled, satisfied, and complete. And maybe it's something we wrote down before. Maybe you're looking at one of these things um, for satisfaction and completion. Just take a 30 seconds to do that. two questions to write down to think and pray over what are you looking for from your if-onlys what are you hoping they'll give you if only I had more money then I would have this what are you looking for from your if-onlys and the second question is how does Jesus give that to you better what are you looking for from your if-onlys How does Jesus give that to you better? 
I might take some good reflection on that second question to think through. It might not seem obvious at first. Well, health, you know, I'm looking to health for me to feel good about myself. And it's like, well, Jesus tells me I'm worth something because he's chose to make me valuable. Or, we're, you know, might take some good heart work to do that. So what you're looking for from your if-onlys and how does Jesus give that to you better? And I think of and Christmas we're celebrating that Jesus has come. He's the king we all long for. He's this king that leads us back to God, leads us into new creation, leads us, leads us back into God's presence, who does everything right, who's always going to treat us right and fair and with a sacrificial love because he's already died for us. And so this is a king, you know, who else would we want ruling over us? Someone who's already given their lives for us. They've already proven their love to the deepest level. We have people all around us putting their hope in other things, and they're consuming it and dying from the inside out. And we can invite them into the best hope. And this is a time of, you know, the crock pot, it's like almost ready. Like, it's, we're the, the seventh seven. We're in the times of fulfillment. It's like, the feast is about to happen. The kings are going to come back, and we're going to be around this, where it's the... Jesus' coming back is described as this marriage supper. Like, you know, we get to this marriage, a wedding reception, it's like everyone's happy and rejoicing and we're all together and we're eating all this food. And it's like that's how Jesus' second coming is pictured. Of like all his people, all the people that are trust in him, be redeemed by him, we're all going to sit around this table um, with him and eat and celebrate and look at what God has done. And this is a time of inviting people to that feast. It's almost done cooking. You know, the crock pots have been sitting for 10 hours and needs to sit for another two or you know, whatever it is and it's like it's almost done and Jesus has almost come back to serve it to us and we invite people to sit around the table with the king so I want to continue to encourage you to think about um, and just take a couple uh, 20 seconds now to think who has God put in my life that I'd like to invite uh, to celebrate Christmas with us on December 24th and I've been thinking through that for a couple weeks and praying and I was thinking about people, and so often we say no for people, like, ah, they won't want to come, ah, they won't want to come. We say no for people, and it's so easy, like, I just want to invite you to experience Christmas with me, my church, I really love it, I'd love it for you to come with me too. So just take 20 seconds and to say a prayer to God, and um, then I'll close us. Father, you never fail to fulfill your promises. We're so thankful for these records you've given us in the scriptures and in Matthew 1, tracing how your plan went down through the generations of people who were faithful and people who were unfaithful and surprising people that would have never been expected to be in this list. And yet you've brought it all to completion that Jesus has come to be our king that we all long for and need. Father, would you place people in our hearts uh, that you um, want us to invite in to celebrating his coming with us. Uh, Would you grant us courage? Would you grant us love and compassion for them? Um, Father, would you continue to fill our hearts with joy and peace and hope as we think about how Jesus has come and how he will come again. In your son's name we pray. Amen.